All right, welcome back, everybody. This is week four of Story, Symbol, Spirit, a yeah. podcast about making sense of scripture, podcast about how to make sense of scripture. Uh, my name is John McCambridge, as always. And I'm Jackie. I'm joined by Jackie Mitchell. Jackie Mitchell. My co-host. I almost said my maiden name. I what do is that. Your, what I, is your maiden name? Well, it's Creator. And it's hard to say, and it's got a silent O at the end. Okay, so just stop right there for a second. Okay. That's not a thing. No, I know. So I, how, so explain explain how your name is cre- is Creator, but there's an O at the end. So I, you know, my dad's side of the family, got the name from, mm-hmm. <laughs> is Italian to some extent. And we think that when they came to Ellis Island, because we have records of them like immigrating, you can go on like ancestry.com. It's actually like really cool to look yeah. at that stuff. We assume that they kept the spelling Creatoro, but started to sound more American. And so the more Americanized version of the name became Creator. Oh, okay. So it's like C-R-E-A-T-U-R-O. They just don't say the O. Oh, yeah, and like that, we really don't know anyone else with like our name besides <laughs> yeah. like people maybe we're related to and maybe like a couple other guys like in the country. So people, teachers always thought I was making it up. Which was like so absurd for me to make up like a no, you don't say the O at at the end. Which to be fair, like that was I think my understanding too. Honestly, honestly. I mean, I, like me as a kid, if you like had me in class, it's not like a crazy thing to assume that maybe I was make trying to do something like that. Yeah. Well, I was gonna make fun of you about that, but now I feel like I'll get in trouble with the Italian American community. So I'm not if you. I'm not really a, that Italian. <laughs> I'm pretty pale and I'm pretty, <laughs> I can't even eat pasta. So. All right. So just, so Jackie, uh, before we get, before we get into this, you're, uh, you, you work here at this church, 514 church in Columbus, Ohio, right. and you have your hands on a lot of different things. One of the things you do is you lead worship every Sunday. It's true. Right. So you're in, you're on our worship team and you play the keys. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Oh, okay. Do you actually play the keys? Oh, well, do you think that maybe I'm just miming it up there? Like, it feels like it would be easy to just lay down a track and then pretend to play the keys. Oh, I wish. I think that'd be fun. But you're actually playing? Yeah, I do play. Hmm. You know, Joel, one time, I will say at a worship night, I felt really bad because afterwards. Pastor, Joel Kovacs. Yes. Afterwards, Joel came up to me and he said, I love that organ solo you did. And that was in the tracks. <laughs> that was just and track. I had to be like, that wasn't me. <laughs> that was great. I didn't do that. And he was like, oh, but I thought I saw you up there jamming. And I was like, I hope I didn't. So, okay. So let me ask yeah. you, let me ask you another question. Which instrument would be the easiest to do what I'm saying to, to pretend to play while you lay down a track? Well, I feel like it has to be keys because it's kind of, right? you can't, you can't really see what my hands are doing mm-hmm. from like the audience perspective i feel like because it's the piano's got like that shell like that top part it's a shell we just put a keyboard in there but it looks like an upright piano and it like has that top like lip there that you can't really see my hands yeah and like have you ever seen the video keyboard cat the cat that plays the keyboard i mean maybe oh like in like 2008 maybe yeah yeah yeah. yeah. back back in my prime yeah okay yeah (laughs) like when youtube videos first started to go viral (laughs) keyboard cat was was it was a sensation at the time and I feel like if you could make a cat pretend to play the keyboard, then a human could pretend to play a keyboard right. much more effectively. And here's why I ask. Okay, I have this uh, burden in my life where cool. I really want to be like what, what's called a renaissance man, <laughs> where I know how to do lots of different things and I have this like breadth of knowledge and skill. So like, you know, maybe there, there's an academic side <laughs> and, and like I know theology and I can, but, uh, but I can also like fix things and I can play okay. music and, and I can write poetry, like okay. you know, the, the Leonardo da Vinci archetype of like a, a, a Renaissance man. And here's, here's my problem. Okay. I don't know how to do anything. So you, you're, you're like one out of like six on the Renaissance things you feel. Can yeah, you fix things? No. Okay. I can't do anything useful, but, but I still want this for myself. So I was thinking that, that maybe what I should do is pretend to do stuff. Yeah. And we, so we could term, film a video. So in terms of music, like I feel like I could be up on stage on the keys. This is so offensive to you. You're a keyboard player, but like not really be playing. Yeah. No one would really know. I don't think unless you were like, like definitely can play keys. That's yeah. amazing. Maybe you're like, definitely it, you're clearly on like the lower side of the piano. You're playing like low notes and the tracks are playing like really high notes. Yeah, but somebody, maybe but some, somebody like me wouldn't even recognize that. Like if, just, if I was in the audience watching. Really? I wouldn't know. No, most people don't know anything about music yeah, or keys I guess or that's which true. side does what. I mean, I know. I guess that's true because all the time, like as a musician, like someone will be like, oh, the good, the guitar player was really cool and it's a bass. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that was a bass. That was so obviously a bass. Or like, oh, that violin was really cool and it's like a viola or like a cello. Yeah. 
What would I think bass might be another one? Bass would be pretty good actually. Because but just, bass is so easy, you should just learn it. I think. Oh, no, not like. A, Jeff, I mean, <laughs> our bass player Jeff Mendring just caught a stray. No, no, no. I think reason. I think I think Jeff would agree. Like, <laughs> obviously, like it, it's easy to start, but it's not like it's not easy to master. But bass is like really easy to learn. Okay, so so you don't play the keys. Bass is easy. This is basically where we've gotten into yeah. worship. And I'm yeah. going to take your position. Jeff learned two weeks ago. We just threw him on. <laughs> I hope he listens to this podcast. This, this is... This Sorry, is, Jeff. All right. Well, uh, why, don't, why, don't, why don't we get into this? What are, what are we doing today, yeah. Jackie? Well, I mean, let's talk about where we've been, okay. what we've done so far. So, so we started out by introducing the podcast, talking yep. about story, symbol, and spirit, what that means. Um, so we unpacked some of those words. We unpacked like the big ideas about the Bible, our presuppositions. Mm -hmm. So we unpacked like that we believe that the Bible is inerrant. We unpacked that we believe that the Bible is inspired. So what that means for Mm -hmm. our lives, stuff like that. We had a great conversation with Sean about kind of some apologetics about, you know, how the Bible was created, how it came to be, um, you know, from a historical standpoint. And then we want to take the framework that we've been building up and and talking about, and we want to, apply it. So that's what we're here to do today. Yeah. So, so story, symbol, spirit is really like the methodology or the framework of, I think like a very effective way of understanding the the Bible and not just understanding it, but understanding like the depth and the complexity of it and, and all of that. Um, and so I think when you take all three of those elements together and, and you read the biblical story and you know, you can go to these different stories or these different passages that, you know, to, to someone who, who doesn't see it this way yet, there are passages that you want to avoid. There are stories mm-hmm. that you want to avoid. Mm-hmm. I always talk about how you open the wrong page of the Bible. Like you want to read the Bible, but you open the wrong page. You go to like one of those Psalms that's violent. Yeah. Or you go to the book of Judges, which is like scary mm-hmm. or whatever. You go to the story of, you know, uh, Elisha and then in the, the, the bears mauling the what, what's translated as children or whatever. And, and, the she-bear yeah, the, she the 42 youth. Right, right, right. And uh, I, my contention is that actually those those parts of the story is like not only do they make sense, but, yeah. but they're actually imperative to understand what's going on in the Bible. And, and the problem is not what God has given us in the Revelation. The, the problem is just that there has to be a, a framework that works yeah. to, to read it. And right. I think that, that story, Symbol Spirit's a, a good place to start. So Yeah, we were talking as a small group um, about how God's presented us with the whole Bible. And mm-hmm. so we can decide, well, I don't want to read all of it because it's hard, but it feels like a, it is a cop-out, yeah. right? It feels like a cop-out because, you know, obviously he's given us those for a reason. And so it is our responsibility to dig deep and learn about it. Yeah, I heard a, a, a Bible teacher recently, his name's James Jordan, and he's uh, very inspirational for, for me and, and I get a lot of my stuff from him. But he said something like, you know, because you don't know what Zephaniah says, that's not God's fault, right? God, <laughs> God has given you this revelation. You don't know what Ezekiel is talking about, but that's not God's fault, right? That, you know that, and and it's not necessarily our fault either, in the sense that we have to learn how to how to do that. And you know, my, my contention. This is why I think you know teaching ministry is important in the church and everything is because some some guide has to come along and show you. Yeah. You know what we're talking about: story, symbol, spirit. It's not intuitive. Right. It's not like you just pick up the Bible and you're like, oh, I intuitively, instinctually know that this is how you're supposed to view right. it. This is how you're supposed to do it. Right. Someone has to show it to you. Right. But the the beautiful thing about what we're doing, and I think what, what we're going to do today and next week with the book of Jonah, which you're going to talk about here in a second, yeah. um, is that what I've learned is that some teacher or guide has to open your eyes. But then once they open your eyes and, and you start to see it that way, you can never unsee it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for you as a self-starter to, to begin that process. But once you step into it and once your eyes are open and you see it that way, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And so forever and always, that story means something different now. Yeah. And the Bible story means something different now. And so that, that's why this kind of stuff is important because, yeah. you know, it, perhaps what you learn at this, in this podcast is for the rest of your life. You know, if you learn to see the Bible this way, then you'll never unsee that. You'll mm-hmm. you'll never you'll never see it the same way again. And that's really what we're, that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So so what do you what do you want to do to to start today? Jonah, you're gonna talk about Jonah. Yeah, we're gonna you're talk, gonna about, talk Jonah? about We're gonna talk about Jonah today. You're gonna talk about what people historically like have viewed Jonah as, mm-hmm. like 
like kind of the presuppositions of Jonah itself. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should get in. Do you think we should review the, the review framework? The, the framework. First? Let's yeah. review it. Let's go over I think, it. I think uh, if if you go back and listen to episode two, yeah, we we got into st- uh, story symbol spirit and and what the different parts of the framework are. Yeah. But it's probably it's probably worth recapping. Yeah. Just before Let's before recap. we get into a book and use the framework. So right. Uh, so so story is this idea that the Bible is a story. Yeah, a unified narrative. Unified narrative. So from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, the whole counsel of God, the whole inspired scripture, all of the word of God that we've been given is a single story. Right. And it's lots of stories within that, and there's lots of tangents, and there's lots of things that are happening here and there in the story, but but first and foremost, it is foundationally a, a narrative from, from the beginning Correct. to yeah. the end. Correct, yeah, yeah. And so today we're going to talk about Jonah, and uh, this is almost—it's almost like what, we, what what I want to do today is, and next week is I want to give a teaser, you know, because we're going to begin in Genesis, and the story begins in Genesis, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's not a lot of the story framework that you have to work with yet. You're building that story framework as you read, and so what I want to do today is I want to take a book that's kind of in the middle of the Bible, and show how using the framework that book means more than what we could possibly imagine. That's cool because it's like a trailer. Like if you ever watch a movie trailer, it's not like the first three minutes of the film. Right. Usually. Yeah, right, right. It's usually like uh, something in the middle. So here's our like trailer of like what we're getting into in the middle. Yeah, so so if you like or or you're informed or helped by the way that we look at Jonah over the next couple weeks, today and next week, then... um, then, then come back the week after and let's start in Genesis and let's do this through the whole Bible, yeah. which, you know, we don't, we don't exactly know like how long that's going to take, uh, but that's not necessarily intimidating to us. We want to give people resources to do this. And so, um, so, so Jonah, in terms of story, Jonah fits into the story somewhere. Like it's right. part of the narrative. And so you can read Jonah by itself, kind of the way that we do with Sunday school with kids. And you can get profound truth from it. You can get things from it that matter, things that are important, things that help you in your faith. But if you really want the depth of knowledge and you really want to understand the richness of God's revelation, what he's saying and doing in and through the prophet Jonah, then you have to understand where Jonah fits in the story. Yeah. You know, um, I think we talked about this the first week, but there's something called the scandal of specificity, which is that God revealed himself to specific people at a specific time in a specific place. Mm -hmm. And that means he revealed himself in history. And, you know, I don't exactly know what the proper definition of history is, but, but technically history is a succession of moments. Mm -hmm. And so every moment occurs somewhere in that succession of moments in time and space and matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so one of the ways that you can understand what has occurred is you look at what happened before and then you look at what happened after. And that's the way that we teach history, mm-hmm. right? So, so if you want to learn about the Civil War, uh, it, uh, only a bad teacher would not talk right. about the run-up to the Civil War, right? what occurred to, that led to that. right? And then only a, you know, a bad teacher or a bad curriculum would then not talk about what happened after. Yeah. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the Reconstruction, um, Andrew Johnson, Jim Crow laws, you know, all mm-hmm. of the stuff that happened after it. In order to understand the Civil War, you have to understand what happened before and after because right. it's a historical right. event, which means it happens within a, 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 a you know sequential time, yeah. succession of moments. And so Jonah's a prophet at a specific time in history. And this is not a random event where we draw random truths. He's a part of a people. He's a part of a group. He's a part of a kingdom. There's other kingdoms and empires around him. There's geopolitical events that are happening and what he's doing in this story has to do with that, at least to some extent. And most of that you can mine from the Bible itself. Mm. You don't even need to be an expert in, you know, uh, ancient Near Eastern Semitic languages or ancient history or anything like that. It's in the scriptures. Yeah. You know, you think about um, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Judges, Joshua. These are historical narratives. They're telling a historical story of what happened, and so. Mm. Um, so, so, so for story, we're going to begin by seeing where Jonah fits in that story. Yeah. So that's, that's the first S. That's right? story. And then symbol, symbolism yeah, symbol. in scripture and in mm-hmm. Jonah. I think there's some really cool stuff in there from Jonah, but uh, we talked about how symbolism is not just like a metaphor, right? Right. So it's not just that, you know, 
this means something and it's not really it wasn't this thing it was actually just an allegory towards right. you know god is good but that like real physical things can still be symbolic and point towards god exactly. and that there's themes that reoccur throughout the bible mm-hmm. so we'll get into some of those in jonah as well yeah so uh when when in our world because of the intellectual tradition we come from which is the enlightenment rationalism when we say something symbolic we kind of mean it's not real yeah like it kind of, it's not, it means something, it's not real, which is actually kind of the way we think about story too, which is not the way right. that we're talking about these things. Um, in, in episode two, we make the claim, and this is a very orthodox Christian claim that God created the world for a purpose, for mm-hmm. a reason. Um, Trinitarian theology is really important for Christians. And one of the reasons it's important is because there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, and they exist in one essence, in a perfect relationship of perfect love given, love received, and then love reciprocated in mm-hmm. this, uh, the, the Greek word is called perichoresis, where the, the, every, every person of the Trinity is giving all that they have to the other two and is mm-hmm. receiving back all that the other two have at all times. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's important for creation is because that means that God did not have to create the world. He didn't create the, the creation to love us. Yeah, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't lonely. He existed in a perfect relationship of love. Mm. So then so then that begs the question, then why did he create it? Mm. And I think that the answer to that question is because he wanted to share that love with his creatures. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that God wants us to know him. That's the whole reason he created the world. He wants his creation to be in union with him, to be in communion with him, to, to know him, and to, to walk with him. Uh, and so the, the problem is that he's the creator. So like we're creatures mm-hmm. and, you know, we have all these philosophical terms that we come up with to try to understand what he's like. And we say things like he's infinite and he's eternal and he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. Those are all theoretical. We have no idea what that means in yeah. experience. We don't know what infinity actually is. It's a philosophical debate. We don't know what something like zero or nothing actually means. You know, these, these are like theories that we've come up with to help abstractly understand things. Um, and so God is all of those things and that makes him basically unknowable unless he reveals himself. Mm-hmm. So the symbol aspect of this is that uh, one of the ways that God primarily has chosen to reveal himself is through his creation that things that you see in this world, trees, rocks, water, rivers, oceans, humans, birds, stars, the sun, the moon, the, 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 the sky, these maybe the primary reason for those things existing is to show us something about God, mm-hmm. to show us something that's true. Um, it's not that we see those things and we say, oh, that's a good explainer for what God is like. Yeah. What we claim as Christians is actually that that's the purpose of that. Yeah, we, we sometimes act like maybe we're discovering, like, I've made this new metaphor for what God is like. Right. And, like, <laughs> God probably placed that metaphor there, right? He yeah. probably gave us that symbol, but somehow we're like, God is like a tree, and you know what? I just thought of that, and that was really exactly. cool. But, uh, you know, that's the could be the tree's very purpose. It could be, the, and, and, it, and I think that the Bible says that yeah. it is the tree's primary yeah, purpose, right? exactly. It's the purpose of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, that that God has put these things here, that through them uh, we, we, might, we might know him. And so you're going to see things in Jonah like the sea means something. Mm-hmm. It's not just a naturally occurring phenomenon that happens in a closed system of material cause and effect. Um, there are all of those, you know, uh, scientific correlates to de- describe what the sea is, but that's not primarily what the sea is for. The sea represents something. Mm-hmm. The sea shows us something about God and this world and ourselves, and we have to learn to see it that way. The, the way that I like to, to try to lead people down this road is that um, everything you make has your imprint upon it, Hmm. right? So if you make music, if you make a painting, if you create a sermon or a talk, if you make a meal, you know, people say that this meal was made with love. Yeah. That means that it has something about you is imprinted upon it because as a creative being, you make something and part of you gets stamped onto it. Part of your personality Mm -hmm. is imprinted upon what you create. So uh, did you minor in worship music? 
Majored. You majored in worship yeah. music. Minor in Bible. My, minor in Bible. So you majored in worship music. So you're pretty familiar with contemporary worship music? Yeah. If I if you had never heard a song before and I played a song by Elevation Worship and I played a song by Hillsong, could you probably tell the yeah. difference? You can tell by their their synths, I think. But yeah. That each artist definitely has their own style. And so that's why it's easy for people to parody things. I mean, that's why Weird right. Al, like yeah, was right. able to, you know, you can create songs that sound like another artist wrote them. Why? Because that's distinguishable, right. their sound. And so certainly, you know, Elevation's got their synths that I, you know, I hear it and I'm like, dude, that's an Elevation yeah. synth. Yeah, exactly. Josh and I do that. Yeah. So, so and, and you know, if you know classical music, yeah. you can tell the difference between Beethoven and Bach. Yeah. You know, you can tell the, the difference between your grandmother's lasagna and if your husband Josh tried to make you lasagna. Oh, absolutely. Because the yeah. because something about <laughs> us is imprinted upon it. Yeah. Upon you know, the maker right. imprints his or herself upon the maid. Right. And so, you know, our our doctrine of creation as Christians is that God created this world ex nihilo out of nothing, mm -hmm. which means every single thing in this world has God's stamp on it. Uh, so he, you know, God's incomprehensibly complex, mm -hmm. but we can know things about him and we can know what he's like, partly because his creation has his his imprint on it mm -hmm. in the same way that the music that we just talked about has it. And so he reveals himself symbolically uh, because he wants us to know him and also because we're not purely rational beings. No. We're not just brains on a stick, mm. which is actually how we tend to think of ourselves. And that's because like I talked about earlier, the intellectual tradition, the philosophical tradition that we come from, I think therefore I am. It's one of the most famous philosophical dictums that, that's out there, but it's actually like not really true. Yeah, I don't think we're it's really not all we are. People. Yeah, it's it, we have emotions. You know, art is not always rational. We're artistic. Mm -hmm. Emotions are not always rational. We're emotional, and so in order to reveal Himself to us, God speaks to all parts of our nature. He doesn't just give us abstract propositional truth. If He wants us to know what the the story that that ends in Christ is, he does not just give us a, a phrase of truth, like Christ died for the like sins of man. Like a bullet point of things about him. Yeah. Or even, yeah. Or even like, okay, summarize the Christian faith. Yeah. Christ died for the sins of man. Well, that's an abstract okay. propositional truth. And that's true. And he does give that to us. And in terms of the biblical witness, that happens a lot in Paul uh, because of what, Paul's intellectual tradition. Uh, but he also gives us bread and wine. Yeah. And he gives us water and he gives us dirt. Poetry. He, he gives us poetry. Yeah. And he gives us rocks. Um, have you ever been to a to a mountain like on vacation? Like a like a beautiful Yeah. What what which mountain have you been to? Uh Scottsdale, Arizona. What yeah. is that like? Is the, it Sino is Sedona? Something like that, yeah. yeah. We didn't hike all the way up, certainly not, but mm -hmm. but we went like a couple miles up. Yeah. So so you go to a mountain. And I've had the, the privilege in my life of being to like some of the most beautiful mountains in the mm -hmm. world. I've been to Big Sur in California. I've been to the mountains uh, of, of Cinque Terre in Italy yeah. that overlook the sparkling blue sea. And so when you were in Sedona, was your first thought when you're on the mountain, huh, this mountain's like God? No. No. But the Bible says over and over again yeah. that God is like a mountain. Yeah. And so... Uh, we don't see that because we're immersed in creation. Mm -hmm. And because of that immersion, we become numb to it. Yeah. You know, but we have to learn to see through those eyes again. Yeah. And the Bible can teach us how to do that. That's, that's what, that's what uh, James Jordan says, is that the Bible can help us see through new eyes. Mm. And what I talked about earlier is that that means that once you see through those eyes, you'll never see the same way again. We really should see mountains like that. We really should see rocks like that. We really should see fire like that. We should see um, animals like that, mm -hmm. you know, because that's the creation that God yeah. created. He did it for a purpose because he wants to reveal that to us. And so when we get into Jonah, there's just an incredible amount of symbolism that someone has to teach you to see it, but then you'll never see it the same way again. Absolutely. So that's symbol. So and, when then, we, and when we get into Genesis, that's like going to be a huge piece. Because that's the foundation for a lot of the, you know, the symbolic metaphor that we'll see in the rest of the the scriptures. We'll, right. we'll see those symbols reoccur. And we'll yeah. pull some from Jonah that we'll then visit in Genesis. Yeah, yeah. The, I think that the creation story yeah. becomes the symbolic framework for the rest of the Bible. Absolutely. So we'll spend a lot of time talking about trees and fruit and wheat and 
bread and all the things that you see in the garden of, of, <laughs> of Eden and all that. Um, so, so that's so that symbol. So then spirit. Yeah. So spirit, again, this has to do with uh, counterforming our uh, uh, natural intellectual traditions, disposition towards the world. Right? Yeah. This is another one that I think we, we sneakily think in the back of our mind, this isn't real. Mm-hmm. Just like, story and symbol spirit is like i you know you can say spiritual but a lot of people take that to mean like not real not like physical just you know an right. idea or just right, a concept right, right. yeah and and you know the the bible presupposes a world that is shot through right totally immersed in an unseen realm of gods and angels and yeah. demons and spirits and divine beings and you and i don't presuppose that world yeah you know, that's not the intellectual tradition we come from. And so most people, what I've learned being a pastor at a church is that most people who would consider themselves Christians and are trying to faithfully mm-hmm. follow God, they're, they're actually what is philosophically called deists, mm-hmm. where God created the world in such a way that it has a system, a closed system of material cause and effect, energy forces matter that self-sustains. And therefore, God created that, but he's gone. And every once in a while, he might pop back in with a miracle. But, but you know, that, that's a very specific framework that has historically called, been called uh, deism. Uh, and it's because we don't presuppose this unseen realm. Yeah. We don't, we don't think that when the Bible talks about spirits and, and demons and gods, that it's real. Right. We think something along the lines of like, oh, these ancient people... You know, they, they, don't, they don't know what we know. Right, because this wasn't the understanding of the world that the biblical authors have. No, so, not at all. So it makes it incredibly hard for us to not at least consider their viewpoint, right? right? And, and to understand the way in which they wrote was because they believed that this was real and they believed that there was more than the physical world. Right. And, and, and the Bible says that. And, and my kind of foundational starting point with this is that it is real. Yes, yeah. And then our experience actually tells us that it's real. Right. You know, um, I always say that, that I, think we, I think we talked about this a few episodes ago, but if you take a random Gen Z person on the street and you ask them about their religious mm. beliefs or affiliation, they're going to say something along the lines of, I'm spiritual, spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. Which means they don't belong to a religious institution. But this thing that I grew up in the midst of, which was kind of like the new atheist rationalism that was like... Yeah. Uh, you know, Sam Harris and, and uh, Richard Dawkins and these guys, um, that all that there is is material. Yeah. Um, people don't believe that anymore. Mm-hmm. The younger generation doesn't believe that. Well, why? Well, because our experience doesn't tell us that that's true. Absolutely. We don't live in a certainly just a materialistic way. Right. We wouldn't have loved ones. We wouldn't care about art like we did. We wouldn't care about friendships like we did if we truly believed all that there was to this earth was dirt right. trees rocks minerals yeah yeah and maybe maybe we'll do at some point a few episodes on apologetics because yeah. it's, it's even more than that you know like if you actually have a materialist framework like most people think they do you're a determinist hmm. you don't believe in free will you can't and so we're not going to get into that now but uh um that that is where that that worldview logically leads to yeah and that's not true. No, and we all know that. We know that that's Deep not down, true. yeah. That's why, to me, like sometimes I get frustrated. I'm like, we're arguing for something that we know isn't true. Right. We know that's not real. We know that's not true. We know that we have some kind of will, that there's some kind of you know, non-material things that are happening in our life, in, in, in ourselves right. and around us. And, and so um, you're going to see this in full effect in Jonah. Mm-hmm. And what we have to see when we get to those parts is that, they, in my opinion, they see the world better than we do. Hmm. They understand the world more accurately than we do in that way. They don't know all the science that we know and they don't have the formulas and, and they haven't figured out all the ways to manipulate the environment through those, those methods and through the technological development that comes from those metho- methods. But we actually ourselves are way more alienated from, from yeah. the real world than they are. I think when we took scientific 
Is that a word? No. No. Gosh, that's really bad. Scientific? I'm going to flag this so yeah. that uh, we put it on TikTok. <laughs> Scientific. Well, you can tell how much I'm not, you know, in STEM, how much yeah, I have so. a Bachelor's of Arts <laughs> is what that revealed. Um, I, scientific revelation to us was that, okay, we'll throw away what we presupposed before. But I actually think it should, you know, live in harmony mm-hmm. with what we knew before. And so I, I think the tragedy was that we we found out this additional information about like physically how the world worked. And yeah. we said, well, then God must not be right. working. And it's right. like those two didn't have to, you know, be at odds with each other. And, and, and the reason I'm the reason that I'm comfortable or, or hopeful that people can recover this kind of view of the world is because not only is it more experientially accurate and satisfying, it, it's also like you said, it's not necessary. You don't have to no. deny science yeah. to, to believe in this stuff. You know, so science is doing a specific thing and you can use it for that. And yeah. so you, you don't have to be like anti-science or anti-intellectual to, right. to believe in this this framework that we're right. talking about. Um, so so that's, that's story, symbol, spirit. Um, uh, using that framework, we're gonna get into Jonah, which is a really short book. And it's nice because it's a, it's a prophet that tells a narrative. So most of the prophets are poetry. Hmm. That's why it's hard for us to read them. So like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, all, the, all the minor prophets besides Jonah, um, th- these, these are books of poetry and prophecy. Uh, Jonah is a prophet and his, his book is about a story about him. Mm-hmm. And so we can really use these, these frameworks pretty uh, illustratively. To, to, to show how we can gain such a, a rich, beautiful meaning from, from, from this book, uh, mm-hmm. more so than our VeggieTales understanding of Jonah and the whale. So, so with that, Jackie, what, what, what do you, um, you know, when you think of the book of Jonah and like your history with yeah. it or whatever, like what, what typically comes to mind? What do you typically think about? What are, what are the questions that pop up? Well, Sunday school Jonah stops in chapter three. I think. Okay. Most of the time. There's four chapters. I don't think we get into chapter four, which is the final chapter, yeah. or at least I didn't. The VeggieTales movie does not. I yeah. don't, well, I take that back. They might a little bit, okay. but you know, our classical understanding of Jonah is, you know, didn't want to go to Nineveh, mm-hmm. got on a boat, mm-hmm. you know, thrown off the boat. Here comes the big fish, spits him back up. Jonah's like, all right, I guess I'll go. And he goes to Nineveh, the end, right? Yeah. So that was my Sunday school understanding. And and part of that is that like when you're teaching kids stories, it, it's easy to digest mm-hmm. a, an individual story and to be able to make it like a an allegory for something. I, I get that presentation for sure. But yeah. I think that um, some of our presuppositions come from the way it's been, you know, Sunday schoolized, right? Right. And so for me, I... It wasn't until much later I really read through Jonah and I was like, oh, there's a fourth chapter. It keeps going. And it's incredibly important to the story. Yeah. So I, I think that's huge. The Yeah, that's good. The VeggieTales movie is really good though. It is good. And that's the thing is like, you know, I don't, I would never disparage that stuff. We have a, oh, yeah. an awesome kids ministry here. And this is what we do with the yeah. stories, right? Be, and, and the reason is because what I'm going to go through for the, ne- for the rest of this episode and the next episode, you can't tell that to a kid. No. And it's, it's they won't remember. That's it. what I mean. Like yeah. they, they can't process it. Yeah, like, they're not ready for that. Yeah, and so that's why, like you know, just like being a human, uh, as a human, it's you're developmental, mm-hmm. and so that means your face should be developmental too, and so it's not a problem to teach a six year old the Veggie Tales version of Jonah, but it's not okay for you to be a thirty five year old Christian trying to lead a family and be in your community and be a witness right. to, to God and to have a six-year-old's understanding of, of Jonah. Right. The reason why those stories stick for those of us who grew up in church is because they were, you know, made into songs, made into stories that were easily digestible. And so we remember them. Right. And so I remember Noah's Ark. I remember Jonah. I remember David and Goliath. Do I remember the theological complexities as I remember what I... Did? No, but I remember the foundations. Yeah, which is for a, sure, which, which is, is what we're doing with children. Yeah, absolutely, we're which laying the foundations of their faith. So, absolutely. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, that was a good VeggieTales. That was a good VeggieTales episode. Yeah, and there, and there's a reason that that those that uh, children learn the same stories. Right. And it's because those stories are easy to 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 do this with yeah. to create a foundation and a memorable. Um, yeah, a foundation for 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 it. Yeah. But then you know, as you grow, you gotta 
you got to try to grow yeah. your understanding as well. Um, most people who are listening to this podcast, if you think about your day-to-day life, you're, you're, you're doing incredibly complex things in your day-to-day life. And so that means that you're capable, right? And so we have the word of God in front of us. And so we use what we have available in terms of our intellect and understanding and emotions and all that to, to try to understand it at a deep, rich, mm-hmm. textured level, which I think we're going to do with Jonah. And, and I hope that this is exciting. You know, uh, I talk about the Bible Project a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim Mackey, the creator of the Bible Project, he opened my eyes like I'm talking about trying to do for mm-hmm. people. And what happened when my eyes were open to the biblical story in a new way is that it was thrilling. Mm-hmm. You know, learning this stuff is supposed to be exciting. It's supposed to be thrilling. It's supposed to, to, to be, you know, a, a, a lightning bolt of excitement and energy because this is the word of God. Yeah. And sometimes it feels impenetrable, but then once you can penetrate and once you can see it and you can start to understand it, it, like that thrill should happen. And so as we go through the story, like I hope, I hope that that happens for people because uh, it happened for me so much so that I chased Tim Mackey and I went to his seminary and I learned the Old Testament from him. And, you know, he really yeah, did impact absolutely. me that much because I said what he did for me, I want to do that for people. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that I wanted people to learn what I learned, but that I wanted people to be thrilled by the scriptures. Yeah the way that I was thrilled by how he opened my eyes to it. So, uh, so, so why don't we just finish off this episode today by going through, you know, the story aspect okay. and contextualizing yeah. where we are when we get to Jonah. Hmm. Um, uh, the first time that Jonah is mentioned in the Bible is not the book of Jonah. It's actually in second Kings. So, so, uh, second Kings is a part of the historical narrative of the people of Israel. And it says in 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 23, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, mm. the prophet from gath Hefer. So this is in, that's in Second uh, Kings. We'll make sense of some of that stuff that I just read because that was a lot of names yeah. and, and stuff. But the book of Jonah opens with the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Same guy. Same guy. So same guy, that time. So, so, so that means that at this time, Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, is the king of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so what we have in uh, uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, is you have the chronicle of the kings of Israel. And so you can place this in its historical context because, because we have that. So what I want to do is I want to start not at the very beginning, not at Genesis, but we'll start in Exodus, which is okay. pretty close to the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see how we got to uh, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, who Jonah prophesies to. Mm, okay. So Jonah's a prophet in the court of the king, and the king is Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. And so mm. uh, in Exodus, the people of God are delivered from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, miraculously. And they wander around in the wilderness. They're given the presence of God, which dwells in the tabernacle. They're given the covenant or the law. And that word law in Hebrew is Torah, 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 which means instructions, Mm -hmm. because it's the instructions on how to be the people of God. God says, you will be my people, I will be your God. And the law is grace, because God says, here's how to be my people. So they get the law um, uh, at at Mount Sinai, and they're promised a homeland, which is the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel, Palestine. Um, And because of sin and rebellion, this first generation, they wander around for 40 years, And that generation is denied entrance into the promised land, including Mm -hmm. Moses himself, who's one of the greatest prophets who who ever lived in Israel. And then the next, you know, after the Torah, the first five books, the next book is Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, the people of God go into the land with the covenant in hand, and they take possession of the promised land, and they don't have a king. Mm -hmm. 
And so the next book after Joshua is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges shows the problem or the issue with the fact that they don't have a king. It's a book that's full mm. of apostasy and violence and idolatry, and it ends in a near civil war. And the haunting refrain that is given throughout yeah. the book of, of Judges is, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So the problem with everyone doing as they see fit is that that's an echo of the fall. Right. Because in Genesis 3, the man and the woman eat from which tree? Knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil yeah. to decide good and evil for oneself outside of God, or at least before they're ready, mm-hmm. before they have the experience and the wisdom to have access to that, um, is emblematic of what the Bible calls the fall. Yeah, and you talk about the law as grace. God had given them the Torah so that, you know, they didn't have to figure out what was right in their own eyes, but right. that they would be given that. Right. And yet here they are just a few generations later doing whatever they see fit. They're doing the fall. Yeah, again. <laughs> and so uh, there's not good, yeah. right? And uh, you can see that from what goes down because mm-hmm. like I said, there's, there's violence, there's rape at mm-hmm. the end and the nation almost splits, you know, the tribes almost split from each other. From each other. And so it's pretty clear as we go into 1 Samuel that Israel needs a king. Yeah. Uh, and so 1 Samuel chronicles that progression where in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites ask for a king and they're given Saul. And so Saul is mm-hmm. the most handsome and the tallest man in all oh, of I Israel. forgot about that, that they throw that in there, that he's yeah. really tall. Because he, that's who you would expect yeah. to be a king. Saul is who you and I would stereotype yeah. to be a king. He's tall, he's handsome, he looks like he has authority. And so he's the king. And, and actually the name Saul in Hebrew is Shaul, and it means the one asked for. Oh, so I Saul know that. is the one asked for by the people. Well, that's cool. And so Saul becomes the king. He's not a great king. And so the kingship is taken away from him and it's given to David. And David is a less stereotypical king. He's not the firstborn son. He's the 11th son, I believe, or the, the 10th of 11th. I can't remember, but something like that. And, and, you know, David becomes king and he actually commits some like egregious sins. Yeah. And he's deeply flawed and he's broken, but he does respond to God in humility and repentance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because of that, he becomes like the model king going forward. And yeah. God promises that the, the kingship will never leave his line. And so when he dies, the kingship is given to one of his sons, Solomon. Right. And that, that name is Sh- Shalomo. Shalom. You know, like peace. peace. So, so Solomon's son of peace, Shalomo, Solomon. Wow. Uh, and, and he becomes the wisest man in the world. Yeah. And the kingdom flourishes more than anybody could have ever imagined under him. And then he eventually marries foreign women. Yeah. Uh, brings their gods into his worship. Yeah. He apostatizes and, and actually brings foreign gods into the temple. Yes, yeah. And so things start to go south while he's still living. And there's a man named Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who we read about in that mm-hmm. second Kings verse that I said. And he actually rebels mm-hmm. against Solomon and tries to take the throne. And he's driven off and he flees into Egypt. But then, uh, but then Solomon dies. And so the, the kingship is given to his successor, his son, whose name is Rehoboam. And uh, re- when Rehoboam takes over, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt and he comes back and he actually makes a peace offering. And he says, on behalf of most of the tribes, so there's 12 tribes. Okay. Uh, Solomon is of the tribe of Judah. Right. And basically everyone else. Okay. Jeroboam comes to Solomon on behalf of everyone else. And he asks Rehoboam, to ease the yoke that Solomon had put on his mm. people, specifically regarding the, the labor and the taxes used to build the temple and the palace. Mm-hmm. Someone's got to build it, someone's got to pay for it, and Solomon used his people to, to do that. Yeah. And so Jeroboam says to him, he, come, he comes to Rehoboam, and he says, myself and all these people were totally willing to serve you as king if you ease these burdens. Yeah. And so Rehoboam goes to his advisors. And his older advisors, the wise men on the, on the court, the, the Bible says that gray hair is a crown of glory because of what experience in this world gives you in terms of wisdom. Mm-hmm. The wise advisors on his court tell him that he should listen to Jeroboam and he should grant them this. They say, he'll serve you forever if you just mm-hmm. give them this. And then he goes to his, his, his young guns on his court, <laughs> the, the, the young guys, and they say, no, you should actually ramp up the, the craziness. Just double down? Double down. And so, of course, Rehoboam listens to, 
to his his young friends instead of the, the cool older, guys. wise yeah. people. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and he goes back to Jeroboam and he says, you think my father is bad? Wait till you see how I am. Mm. And so Jeroboam, along with all of the other tribes, split. Yeah. And, and they go into the north. So Judah's down in the south where Jerusalem is and the tribes split. There's basically a civil war. They don't actually fight a war because God comes to Rehoboam and says, don't pursue this war. And so it's somewhat of an amicable split in terms of violence. Um, but, but now there's two kingdoms. So I go through all that to tell you there's a southern kingdom, Judah, and there's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, mm -hmm. becomes the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and, and Solomon's line, Rehoboam, remains the king in Judah or the southern kingdom. And so there's a north and there's a south, and the capital in the north is Samaria, and the capital in the south of, is Jerusalem. And Jeroboam, uh, God comes to Jeroboam, the king of the north, and he says, if you're faithful to me, I'll bless you just like I'll bless Judah. He says, oh, I will bless you if you're faithful to me. Well, uh, Jeroboam immediately makes golden calves, which is a repeat, literally, yeah. of the story of Exodus, Exodus. 32, uh, which is the fall of Israel, by the way. We'll get to that. And so Jeroboam falls and mm -hmm. takes the kingdom with him. Um, and he puts the golden calves at Bethel, which is a really, uh, Bethel is uh, Bet-El, which means the house of God. El mm -hmm. means God, Bet means house, house of God. And Jacob, the, the, um, the patriarch, Jacob, their father, um, named Bethel that because that's where he was sleeping and he saw the angels on the ladder. Mm. So Bethel is the place of Jacob's ladder. And he wakes up and he says, God was in this place and I did not know. Yeah. And so he calls it the house of God. And so Jeroboam takes golden calves and puts them on the high place in, in the house of God, uh, <laughs> basically immediately. And that kind of sets off this chain of reactions that leads to where we get to in Jonah, where all of the kings of the northern kingdom are bad. They all mm -hmm. commit this same kind mm -hmm. of either idolatry or straight up apostasy, where they actually bring in foreign gods. So um, th this, this uh, pattern, this sequence of bad kings leads to, so, you, so no one has to remember all this but I just want to go through this because sometimes seeing how, how many yeah. times this happened, this gives us good context for what kind of environment Jonah was prophesying yeah. in and what was happening when he was there. So Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is bad. We just talked about that. Yes. Then his son Nadab is also bad, does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then his son Basha is bad, does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then Elah, then Zimri, takes the throne through assassination. The people won't even give him the kingship. They give it to a man named Omri. And so Omri's bad. And then Omri's son is Ahab. And Ahab's the worst king in the history yeah. of God's people. He's the one who marries Jezebel. And this is during the prophet Elijah's time. And uh, they, they bring in you know, Baal, who's a different God, Baal. And they, they worship him in the temple. Mm -hmm. And they put him in, or, or in their temple. They put him in the high place. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, Elijah's message as he battles these prophets of Baal is that if the people of God do not change, if they don't stop doing this, then judgment is coming. And his successor, Elisha, continues this yeah. and, and confirms the, th the same thing. And so Ahab's son is Ahaziah, and he's bad. Mm -hmm. And then his son is Joram, and he's bad. And then God appoints a man named Jehu to kill Joram and end the line of Ahab, okay? But then Jehu's not good either. And so his son mm. Jehoaz takes the throne. He's not good. And then his son is Jehoash and he's not good. Mm. And then we get to Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, which is where we started in second Kings right there. Mm. And so that's 13 bad Kings in a row, 13 Kings who commit apostasy or idol worship, who break one of the first two commandments of, of the, the yeah. law that was given at Sinai. And right there in the middle is Elijah's prophecy of judgment, that judgment is coming. Yeah. And so Jonah finds himself as a prophet on the court of the king who is following right along in the line of all these other kings yeah. who, have done, who, have, who have done this thing that God's promising is going to bring about judgment. And so Jonah would know that judgment's coming. If it's right. not coming on my generation, it's going to come on the next Right. But if we don't repent, if we don't change, if this doesn't stop, then, then judgment is coming. And, and so 
Jeroboam the second or Jeroboam the son of Jehoash is the king. He's the 13th bad king in a row. And Jonah is a prophet on his court. He's a prophet amongst people who are not following God faithfully. Uh, and and um, prophets, the yeah. prophetic office, we tend to think of them as like future tellers, right? Where they predict something and then we see if it happens and comes true. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that's a problem is because is when you try to read the prophets. Yeah. That's not what they're doing. Yeah. They do that from time to time. Yeah. But most of the time they're just like railing against the Yeah, they're kind of it's like diss tracks against <laughs> the kings is really what most of the prophets writings yeah. are. Yeah, like battle they're like ancient battle rappers. It's crazy. Um yeah, and and that's and that's what they're doing. You know, they're kind of like God's prosecuting attorneys yeah. where they're saying like, you know, you you need to return to the covenant because if you don't return to the covenant, yeah then the covenant curses are going to come upon you. It's all in Torah. It's all in Deuteronomy. It's all there. That the, the covenant curses for disobedience, right. you know, these things are, are coming towards you. And so this is what Samuel the prophet did. This is what Nathan the prophet did. This is what Elijah the prophet did. This is what Elisha did. And this is what all of God's faithful prophets do. Yeah. And so this is what Jonah was doing. You know, we don't have uh, a, a biblical book of his prophetic poetry mm-hmm. where he's doing this, but he is prophesying to a king and Jonah is a faithful prophet. So he's well aware of the context and he's well aware of uh, what is at stake, right? Yeah. And so as we get into the book next week, that's the story. That's where we are. So Jonah's not just some guy who God calls and says, hey, get on a boat and go to Nineveh. And he's like, well, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound very pleasant. There's a reason this is his job. Yeah. Yeah, this is his job. He receives the word of God like this. Right. And what we're going to see is that his reluctance to go to Nineveh yeah. has to do with the story and the place that he finds himself in, yeah. in in this story. Absolutely. There's a good reason he doesn't want to go. And it's not be- just because he's like disobedient or like yeah. mean. Or Don't like feel a, like it. Or like a nationalist, yeah. right? So people try to make like put like our modern terms on it and then say that he's like prejudiced or something. And it's like, well, maybe... But that's, you know, it has to do with this biblical story that we just told yeah. and where he finds himself, mm-hmm. where he is in, in the story of the people of God. And so next week, we're just going to open up the book of Jonah and we're going to start with Jonah 1.1 and we're going to take this framework, understanding the story that we just went through in the context, and we're going to go through the, the whole book next week, how, however long it takes. All right. Exciting. So we'll try to do it an hour, but yeah. Awesome. All right. We got it. You got anything else before we get going, Jackie? I'm excited. That's it. All right. Sounds good. Well, we will see you guys next time. We love you and I'll see you in a week. See you guys soon. Mm-hmm.